Father, that you'd just fill us with your word and with your spirit, Lord, that we would uh, receive it, Lord, just with a boldness and with a courage, Father, that doesn't look to gain more edu- anything more educational or, or more knowledge, Lord, just for that sake. But I pray that we would receive your word can grow in knowledge, but more that so we can become, we can become, Lord, and, and have your word be made manifest in our lives. It's truly our prayer, Lord. And we do pray next door for our kids, Lord, for the seeds being planted, Father. I pray that we do a good job, Lord. I pray that you continue to reveal to us where we can do better, where we lack. And I pray, Father, that we would be faithful in a few, Lord, and you would entrust us with more. And I just thank you for that event, Lord. We just You're calling young people to yourself, Lord. We praise you and we thank you for that, Father. I thank you for uh, just a great movement on that, Lord. And pray, Lord, that you continue to call the teens to yourself here in this town, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we would be found worthy, Lord, so you can use us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, yeah, so honestly... This is uh, more of an Easter message um, than it is a November message. But you know what? What ebbs? <laughs> it's just what happens when you're going through the Bible. Um, so we got title of the message is The Resurrection and Beyond. And um, that's really what this whole chapter is about. And if you've uh, you know, missed anything, let me bring it up to speed real quick, if I could, at least from last week. Um, last week talked about, so Paul starts off this chapter 15, he just talked about all these spiritual gifts. And he, talks about, um, he talks about tongues, he talks about words of knowledge, words of wisdom, uh, he talks about miracles of healing, he talks about all this stuff. And I'm so grateful that he just didn't end there. Because if he ended there, then our temptation would be, that's the pinnacle of the Christian life, like all of that, all the time. And if it's not happening, then something's wrong. God's not pleased. He doesn't love us. In other words, people tie together the gifts and the life of the Spirit that God wants to bring forth, because He wants to, and He wants those things to be alive and well and active. But if that becomes the foundation of what a Christian life or a Christian church is built on, they're in trouble. Because when God's not doing a special thing or when we don't have the goosebumps and we're not being touched or being used, oh no, wait, maybe God isn't working. Maybe He doesn't love us. Maybe we're doing something wrong. And, and that's just, that couldn't be further from the truth. When we want to know how God feels about us and how He feels about humanity, we look to one place. The one place we look is to the cross. That's how we know how God feels about us. So it would be a mistake to look at our current season in life and say, man, I guess this is how God feels about me. That would be a big mistake. To look at any struggle or difficulty and say, man, I guess that's how God feels. He wants to just see me struggle my way through the entire time. That would be a mistake. The way He feels about us is the cross. He says, hey, it's totally worth sacrificing my son so I can be in relationship with them so they can be with me forever and so also they can live in freedom and in victory. 
That's what it's about. He's a God of freedom. He's a God of chains being broken, and He is a God of seeing us live life and enjoy life much beyond we could think or imagine. That's what He's all about. And so I'm so glad He didn't end after the spiritual life and the spiritual gifts and the spiritual moves. And I'd like to see those. I'm hungry for those. I desire more of those to happen. But never at the cost of the main and plain spiritual truth that Jesus came, He died, He saved us, we live through Him. Never at the cost of that. So then, in chapter 15 here, we've been talking about last week, you know, we talked about, He talks about Himself being an apostle, and we're like, whoa, 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 how does that work? An apostle? What are the qualifications? How does that work? Biblically, what does it say? So we talked about that stuff. Um, Then we talked about, he says this phrase, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we talked about that last week. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And what we talked about last week was that sometimes people say, by the grace of God, and they get out of jam. Oh, man, by the grace of God, did I get out of that speeding ticket? By the grace of God, was I able to do this? By the grace of God, did he not collect that homework today? You know? By the grace of God, was I able to do whatever? And, and, and maybe there's a little truth to that. But that was not Paul's intention when he said it. When he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am, what he was saying, he's saying, by the grace of God, am I able to make an impact for the kingdom in this world to such an amazing degree? And that's the way we're called to to see it and to view it. Man, it's only by the grace of God can He use me in the ways that He's using me. Because we know who we are. We know who we're not. We know who we try to be. We know what we try to fake. We know where our inadequacies are. And God just takes great joy and pleasure in saying, yeah, yeah, I know. Surrender to me and stay close to me. Those things are side issues. And those deficiencies will then become testimonies. To the son or daughter that chooses to live in faith outside of those. Man, that's good news right there. Really good news. So that's why Paul says, man, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we talked about last week how being a believer, nobody can really say that unless they actually take the risk and get out of the boat and really just throw it all in the way it was supposed to be to begin with. And say, Father, okay, nothing is off limits in my life. You have full access to everything. And some people might think, and this is like... This is where I think the Catholic Church really does a disservice and really just makes a really big mistake. Um, is that many times people think that, like so Mary, for example. So Mary, God chose her to have Jesus born. She must be, man, something amazing. Or God chose Paul to write two-thirds of the New Testament and basically just be a pillar for the New Testament church, they just must be amazing people. Or you might see somebody and say, wow, they are like incredible how they 
communicate or how they pray or how they move and whatever. They're amazing. And a lot of that couldn't be further from the truth. There is no amazing special people. There are people that choose to completely, wholeheartedly surrender themselves unto God and say, Father, this life, this body, my mind, just have your way, Lord. I, I'm going to try and follow you the best that I can. And then when somebody does that, they tend to look pretty impressive. But the truth of the matter is, is that man or that woman in private, by themselves, what they think about, what they read about, what they pray about. It's at a whole other place than most people's are because they actually really meant it when they said, Father, I want you to have my life. I want you to work through me. I want to stay close to you. So there are no special people, and Paul knew that. He's like, man, I was actually the opposite of who I should be. I was actually the guy that was trying to squash everything you were trying to do, Lord. I was actually trying to take out your church. So if there was like somebody in town that was like responsible for stifling everything CC Noggy, they just made life horrible, everything that we would try to do, that'd be like Paul. We would hate that guy. What is it? Who is it? Why? What are you doing? And Paul's like, yeah, that was who I am. It's unbelievable. And it totally works because it's, it's so completely contrasts his prior life that it's only by God who could have transformed him in that way. And that's very much what God wants to do with us in our hearts and in our lives. There might be a lot of things in your life that are totally true, that aren't right, that are bad that aren't great things that are totally far from Jesus. I probably won't have to fight you on a lot of it. The beautiful good news is that is not a guarantee for the future in Christ. That doesn't mean it might not make things difficult along the way. Like, he makes all things new, he makes all things new, we just sang that. He sure enough does. But I'll tell you what, along the way, he will wreck you. It's not just a little, all new. (laughs) No, 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 it doesn't work that way. There's a lot of cutting and snipping and pruning and difficult and hard, challenging things that need to be done. And sometimes people see it as, oh man, I must be really screwing up if he's doing that. And maybe there's there's a place for that, maybe that's true. But then there's also cases where, no, you're exactly where God needs you to be. And he's doing exactly what he needs to do. So after Paul talks about that stuff, we're going to talk about now about resurrection because he focuses on that because there's a huge percentage of the population there that basically their motto was, hey, live, drink, be merry, do whatever because it's all about to end and be over. Just live it up. Get wild. Lose your mind, because it's all going to end. And a huge percentage of that Corinthian population, like that was the view. And they had a name for them and their particular philosophy and who they were. But that was a dominant mindset. So it's like, man, just live it up. Be in the moment. Just do it now. You might not get another one. So just 
do everything that you can do right now. And that kind of crept its way into the church. So we're going to look at this stuff. Um, so let's read it, and I just want to highlight a couple of things at the end. And we're going to take communion. So verse 12. It says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So that's what some people in church are saying. They're like, no, there's no resurrection. It doesn't happen. What does that say? Gotta go? Oh. <laughs> Audio Bible. I thought you said gotta go. I'm like, oh, all right. I guess we gotta go. <laughs> Don't let me get in the way. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul's like, whoa, whoa, you're making a big mistake right here. So there's a group of people that believe in Jesus Christ, that believe that He is the Son of God, that believe that uh, He forgives people of sins, but they don't believe that He rose from the dead. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, that, how, does, how does that work? And the answer is, it's working because in their culture, the mindset of the culture was creeping into the church. And they didn't know how to deal with it, so they just decided to, let's like try and make it work together. And that's kind of dangerous. The church should be a place where it's kingdom mindset, kingdom principles, what God says. Whenever we try and like combine also what's going on outside of it and its values and its value system, and try and bring it into the church, it doesn't work. It's a big mistake. So verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He's really like taking it easy on him, huh? Verse 15, More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He didn't raise Him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So he's just flat out, he's laying it out there, and it's the absolute truth. If Jesus Christ does not resurrect... We are all completely wasting our time. Total waste. That's really the issue on the table when it comes to Jesus Christ. Everybody had claims. Lots of people had claims, made claims about themselves. And Jesus made a pretty radical one where he goes, I am the resurrection. I, I, he's, I am the resurrection, the truth, and the life. That's like, oof. he's either out of his mind completely Oh, he's right on the money. He didn't really create any room for anything in between. And none of us were there inside his tomb to see him rise. I mean, I wasn't there. Like, you weren't there. (laughs) Nobody was there. We are believing in faith some eyewitness accounts that got wrote down. And it was continued to be written down throughout the ages. So there's a huge element of faith here. No denying that. It'd be a shame to like, act like that's not the case. There's, there's no denying that. So Paul's point is, hey, listen, this is 
The resurrection issue is what separates Christianity from every other issue because no other person and any other belief system has ever claimed to say, hey, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise myself from the dead. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do that so I set people free and then they have eternal life. And it's actually going to be a shadowing of another resurrection that's going to come later, which we'll talk about in a minute. So it's all part of the plan. So if Jesus doesn't get raised from the dead, it's like, well, he's like the rest of us. He is also subject to death. Nobody beats death. But if he does beat death, well, then there's something unique there and something we should pay attention to. So Paul's really trying to drive that home. Verse 20. He kind of brings it biblical for them. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits, everybody say first fruits. Yeah, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. And when he has, uh, when he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So some pretty interesting things talking about right here. This issue of first fruits. Like, what is he talking about? first fruit. So I said that before we started reading that, it kind of brings it biblical for them for a minute. Um, in the Old Testament, there's something called the first fruits. And the purpose of the first fruits, like if we all had gardens and we all had farms and we all had agriculture and produce and we lived in the Old Testament, part of God's requirement for approaching him would be, hey, bring some of your first fruits some of the first things, best things that were grown, bring them into the temple and offer them as a sacrifice. As like a preliminary round. It was like a prelim round. And then if that was like acceptable and done right, they're also supposed to bring some other sacrifices in and then offer that to God. So this idea of first fruits is that Jesus was really offered like a first. He was like the first one to really be resurrected. He was the first fruit. The interesting thing with the first fruits is that if the first fruits weren't acceptable for whatever reason, either like they were deformed or people didn't do it um, or whatever the issue was, the sacrifices later from the people. God would show that he is disapproving of it. I am not accepting it. Like they didn't even come to me first with what they were supposed to come with. So I'm not even looking at this later on. It's very interesting. In a minute, in a minute. 
So it's like it doesn't, how does that work? So with these first fruits, they would have to be acceptable, right, and pleasing. Meet a certain criteria that God has spoken to his priests. They said, hey, this is what it has to be. And the people knew what it had to be too. If it was approved and right, their sacrifices of atonement on like Yom Kippur, when the priest would go in and ask for atonement on the nation, when he would go in there, God would actually forgive the nation and the people their sins and they could be in good standing with God. If the first fruits were bogus and not good, they were not on good terms with God. So the issue of first fruits is pretty significant. So if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead and he doesn't conquer it, he's like a bad first fruit. I don't necessarily think that in heaven they're like, oh, is he going to do it? Did it take? Is it good? You know, like, almost like a drug test or something. Like, did they pass? Like, is it good? Is it not? They knew it was going to happen. It was going to work out. But the Bible describes him as being a first fruit as resurrection goes. Now, in the Old Testament, there were people that rose from the dead, even in the New Testament. So there was Elisha that rose a boy from the dead. There was Lazarus, a guy many people know, took him out of the tomb, rose from the dead. Um, there was Eutychus. And Paul in the New Testament rose him from the dead. So some people say, well, that really wasn't the first resurrection. There was other resurrections. The idea being is that a true resurrection, it happens with a brand new body. You don't get the same body. So when you're resurrected, and if you remember at the tomb, and like on Easter morning, and they come, and she wanted to hug him, he's like, whoa, 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 don't touch me yet. I haven't ascended to the Father yet. Something's brand new is going on there. And for us, the Bible describes for the Christian, for the Christ follower, when I die, when you die, and somebody has submitted their life to Jesus Christ, and He is their Savior, and they've, they've made their peace, but they've surrendered to follow Him. When they die, I die, you die, <coughs> we get a new body. So falling asleep is actually not too bad of a term. Because really for the Christian, you, you, don't, you don't really, you don't die. Like, it doesn't happen. You fall asleep or you just change zip codes. It's like, what happened? You change zip codes. And you get a brand new body and a new zip code. Something very impressive, I'm told. I, you know. <coughs> Excuse me, we haven't seen it. We don't really quite know about it, but that's what Jesus said. And Jesus says, hey, i got to go away. i got to prepare a place for you. I'm preparing something for you. I'm like, wow. If Jesus is preparing something, that must be ridiculous. Let me show you something. Uh, turn, uh, you don't have to turn if you don't want to. It's Revel, uh, Revelations chapter 20. <coughs> Excuse me. It's Revelations 20, verse 11. I... I um, I referenced that there is another resurrection, right? So the first fruit resurrection, Jesus Christ, he's the first one. Uh, Then there's this other resurrection that happens. I want to read to you about it. So then I saw 
a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. Somebody's got to get some artwork going on that. What is that even? Earth and sky flee? And then what are you left with? There was no place for them. That's what it says. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Curious what these other books were. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you have a kind of a pretty unpleasant, kind of remarkable scene that happens here at the end where you have these resurrected bodies, really unbelievers that stand before God, His throne, and Judgment Day is coming. This is very much the reality of all people of the society that we live in for all time. Love is a real thing. Grace is a real thing. Compassion is a real thing. So is judgment. And that one's coming as well. And... um, I'm glad that the God of love is the one the judging. I don't really want to figure a lot of that out, and I don't think we're going to really waste too much time talking about that or thinking about that. But I do know that we do have a calling on our life to make people aware of the reality, at least that the Bible and that Jesus talk about, that this judgment day is coming. It's a reality. And we don't really know when, what time, how. Death is a really, really live part. So, there's a situation where they're there, all these books are open, there's the book of life, and then they go there, and, you know, it's not, your name's not found in there, it's, it's not a good situation for you. It's a pretty horrible situation. And there's a lot of debate upon, you know, this lake of hell and what happens to people and what that's really like. It certainly seems to imply forever that that's where they're going forever. Nonetheless, what is it like exactly? I don't know how important that is, but I think it's extremely important and significant to know that it's away from God, away from His presence, and it's horrible. It's not the ideal place to be. And then, it's very interesting, he says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire too. And they're like, okay, we're just done with that whole arena of life. Like, that's over with. So this whole living, dying, this, that, we're thrown in. I don't know how you throw up, but noun like that and throw that into hell, but that's what happens. And then people follow in there as well. Um, and just to go back to real quick, just the sidetrack. A big part of our church, and being a church member, like a big thing that we want to do here is absolutely let God's love be known. Let people know who God is show that, be extensions of it. (laughs) An extremely huge part of the whole thing is saving people 
from where they're headed to go if they don't get into relationship with who God is. This is really important and needs to be said and known all the time. God has entrusted myself, any Christian, myself, yourself, you call yourself a Christian, He's entrusted us with this good news message that hopefully we don't have to like dig too far from because we stay close to His heart in the good news. We say, man, this is who God is. This is what He does. This is what it's like. And you have stories. And you have testimonies. Not a testimony. Testimonies. Stories. About what it looks like with a life surrendered. What it looks like to regularly keep God at the center. To faithfully be obedient in what He calls us to do. And then there's stories of what it looks like of how He comes through. So when we come in contact with other family members, with people in our town, it's, it's so totally natural, number one. It's not just some mental argument back and forth that if there's a God and if there is, and you're just arguing the whole time. It's, man, I need to share with you stories in my life of where I put it on the line and I trusted God. I never thought He would even come through. My faith was small, but yet He did. That's gospel good news, preaching and teaching that's entrusted to all believers that we are called to do. Nobody's off the hook on that one. He is choosing to communicate his love and good news and save people through the Christians that are in relationship with him. It's not in default to the pastors. It's not in default to the worship leaders. It's not in default to the special people. Because there are none. This falls on all of us as Christians. And it feels kind of weird and awkward in the beginning and strange. But what happens is, as we grow in relationship with God, He completely transforms our perspective and our eyes and then when Jesus says something like, when you give your life away, you'll actually find it, all of a sudden, like, you just can't. It's not like they annoy you, they irritate you, it's going to be so difficult, da, 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 da. I feel uncomfortable, I'm not equipped. Those become side issues. It now becomes, oh my, this person, this soul, these people, they matter so much to God. They have so much value. They have an incredible amount of destiny. God, use me in some way to connect to their hearts, whatever it is. Even if I just pray for them for five seconds, or I just give them one encouraging word today, or if you're calling me to be in a longer relationship with them, whatever. That's what it's about, being a Christian. Because that judgment thing is a reality. It's happening and it's coming. But it doesn't have to happen to all people. And let's at least just be guilty of, man, just saying how good God is, how faithful He is. And the best, the best way we can do that is not just mentally say it and talk about it, but then have a life of proof so that way the person or people we talk to or family members we interact with, it's like, it makes sense. They're like, yeah, you're like totally different than what you preach. I see what you do and how you treat so-and-so and how you talk to your wife and how you do this and how you do that. I hear what you're saying, but I'm not, you know. 
people will always find problems too. I mean, let that also be known. People want to find some, you know, problems and issues, like they will. But if you're a Christian, if you're ever like curious, if, if your life is actually matching up with what you believe and what you preach or pray about, do this. I challenge you. Do this. Go to a trusted friend. Christian or non-Christian, actually. Trusted friend and say, hey, would you say for the most part that my life pretty much matches up with what I actually pray and believe and all that? Just ask somebody that. You better be ready for the answer. And you can't get mad at them. You can't get mad at them. Ask somebody. Ask a trusted friend. Say, hey, you know, like what I am, what's going on. Would you say that? I'm not perfect. You know, don't, don't, don't you know, relay that. You're trying to get perfection or anything. You say, hey, for the most part, would you say that I actually follow and believe it? Like, is it believable? What do you think? It'd be worthwhile to get some feedback on that. Because many times we could deceive ourselves in thinking, like, we're doing really well and maybe we ain't doing so hot. You know what's an amazing... Well, whatever, that's another... Whatever. You get my point. You get the idea, okay? So I did sidetrack. I'm coming back. Okay. Verse 29. Uh, now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? They had a practice where they would baptize people for those that were dead. So if people in the church, they knew that somebody wasn't in relationship with God and they knew they died, something happened, whatever, something didn't happen, but they knew they weren't in a relationship. What they did in the church is they would baptize people for them. Paul is not saying to also now do that. He's saying, number one, it's a problem that they are. They shouldn't be doing that. You can be baptized wherever you want. That, that does not mean at all that that person has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and submitted themselves. I cannot save my kids. I can't save Jaron. I can't save Judson. I can't save Jericho. So it is my hope and prayer on a regular basis that they would hear God at an early age, that they wouldn't resist Him, and that they would follow Him. Because I can't save them. The best I can do is put them in an environment I hope and I pray where God is a reality and not some far-off force. And hopefully not in a sense where mom and dad say one thing and they do another. So baptizing people for the dead, you know, it's, it's craziness. Even within their craziness, Paul reasons with them. He says, listen, if the dead aren't raised at all, then why are people even being baptized for them? So he's like saying, hey, listen, you guys are totally inconsistent. Number one, what are you do baptizing people for the dead? But number two... If you're saying you don't believe in the resurrection, why are you wasting church time to baptize people that are dead? You guys aren't making any sense. Verse 30, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, boom. Let us drink and die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. It's interesting how he uses that phrase um, around a belief system and not a, around like 
bad behavior. Like most parents would probably use that verse to say, hey, don't be around bad people. You know, they're influenced. And there's, probably, there's a place for that, I think, for sure. But it's interesting that the context is there's a belief system out there that says that there's no resurrection, which implies that there's no hope. And Paul's saying, hey, if you're around that, that's going to corrupt you. Don't do it. It's interesting, right? Verse 34, come back to your senses as you are and stop sinning. It says that they're even sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. Perhaps of weed or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives it his own body. Its own body. Right? And when you put a seed in the ground, you do any kind of gardening at all. I mean, you put a strawberry seed in there, it doesn't look like a strawberry. It's the whole idea. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. So you know perishables and imperishables at the store? You know what I mean? Like, perishable. We get a new one, imperishable. No shelf life. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first being Adam became a living being, the last Adam, that would be Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, as, and as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That makes me think about people in the Bible that just they went to heaven. Elijah went up to heaven in a chariot, like in a whirlwind. Did he get a new body on the way? Because flesh and blood can't get, get in there. So I don't like, what does that look like? Or Enoch? Like, what happened? It says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable... Uh, sorry, I read it again. And death has been swallowed up in victory. This is what I love to say at every funeral. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, 
always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. A little bit of Jesus sprinkled in does not cut it. It doesn't work. It's designed not to work that way. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So this resurrection issue is a big deal. Big deal. And it also ties in ideas and thoughts about eschatology. Say eschatology. That's end time thinking. That's like revelation thinking. What happens at the end and before God and the death and all this stuff. It's worthwhile to think about that and it's worthwhile to study it. It's not our purpose really this morning. But Paul brings it up. Um, This idea of resurrection. Somebody could come, like any Easter or whatever. Say, okay, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe it. Yay, Jesus. That's step number one. Is just to believe that it happened. Because it does take faith to believe that, right? I think we established that. Nobody was there, we don't know. But we have what was written and what happened, so we believe. So step one is believing in faith. Step two. For many Christ followers, they don't get to, they don't even have it really on their radar. They think they're good with step one. Step two is to become. Here's what I mean. What I mean is, the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead lives inside a believer. Resurrected life. It shows, it illustrates an overcoming, a victoriousness, an aliveness, a newness, a joyousness. These are things that come out of the Christian's life when resurrection is truly a reality. So, yay Jesus, yay Jesus. Yay Jesus, yay me. His resurrection, my resurrection. Definitely for that point in time when I die, a new body and awesome, great. In the meantime, I have promised to be empowered and equipped for any situation for any arena that life may throw at me. So I started off by saying, any area of our lives that is not under the influence of hope is under the influence of a lie. Everything's on the table here. Resurrection power is available to all arenas. It's up to God how He wants to make that be shown and known. And it will look different in all of us. Key part being, we don't have to do this thing in our own strength and in our own power. And the only way we really get to see that and know about it is by stepping out and doing it. My heart has been greatly encouraged the past like six months or so, just in our little church family, of seeing people do things that are like, "Eh, I don't want to do that. But they're like, no, I think I'm supposed to. They're not fully on board. Their faith is very small. They're not super encouraged by the whole thing. But there's something, I know what it is, we know what it is, it's the Lord, 
It's the Spirit, and they're just like giving voice to it. They're just letting it surface in a significant way. And so they're stepping out. I'm greatly encouraged by that. And that's how the whole thing starts. Because that starts to build up those um, testimonies and those stories that we share with others. Instead of, hey, believe Jesus rose from the dead and rose from your sins, and it really happened. And they're like, well, really, why? How come? I don't know. I'm going to just throw my whole life into that? Well, yeah, you're supposed to. The Bible says to. That's not going to get you real far. There's got to be some light. There's got to be some life attached to that. Some history attached to that from the person making those claims and saying that stuff. Got to be. That's what makes the impact. Uh, Let me get communion ready for us. I heard somebody say, it's probably pretty accurate. Um, Mind passing that out? Yeah. Mind passing that out? Yeah. Somebody said, the way we hope for God, or someone was saying hope, hope. So the way we hope for God, it's not my illustration, somebody's thought of it, or somebody said it, and I was like, yeah, that, that actually works. For hope, you know on Christmas morning, and the kiddos come down and they see like the gifts, and they're like, They got like, they're all moving, you know, and they got, they got like tremors, but they don't have tremors, you know, like they're, they're just, oh, oh. I think that's a really accurate picture of the hope that we're called to carry when we walk with our Father. No matter the situation. We don't know what's inside the gift, or we don't know what's around the corner, what might happen. But we should be kind of like, oh. Because we know who's behind it and who's orchestrating it. It gives a lot less room for anxiety and depression and freaking out. So hope that's like a, Chris, like a kid on Christmas morning, you know, seeing those gifts because we know. And many times our hearts, you know, are not like that. And, you know, we're definitely called to come before God and say, God, my heart is not joyfully expecting you to show up in this whatever it is. In fact, I'm really struggling. In fact, I don't know, even know how you're going to. It's good to pray like that and be honest with God like that. Thank you. Alright, so we talked about uh, the day that is inevitable for all of us. Thank you. Did you get yours? So if you have not professed and made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, because a day's coming, if you haven't, one, you don't want to take communion. At least not yet. Um, so if you could, just bow your heads, close your eyes. If you have not ever, ever made that commitment, the day is coming. I promise you that. Because this really isn't a blind faith thing. It, it just happens to be where when we extend ourselves in faith, God shows up and shows himself to be faithful. So it's not really a blind faith at all. If you have never, not if you're trying to really get your life you know, back on track, but if you have never, ever given your life to Jesus Christ, 
and you don't even know if your name would be written in the book of life, you don't know if that's the case, then you should be looking up at me. Only those people. If you don't know, then you're looking up at me. Praise God on that. Right? If you don't know, you're looking up at me. You don't have full confidence. Alrighty. So if you looked up, just repeat this prayer after me, just in your own heart. You don't have to say it out loud. Father, I choose today to completely follow you. I give my heart and my life fully over to you. I thank you, Jesus, for taking my place where I really should have paid and I couldn't. Give me the strength and the courage to follow you even if nobody else does. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father, Lord, for the rest of us, God, we just come before you and we just say thank you, Jesus, for the price you paid. We thank you for the life that you lived and the love that you modeled. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, just for a greater awakening of your power and your equipping in our lives. I pray that we would not be people that that only engage certain things in life because we feel like we can handle it. I pray that we would also be the type of people that would very much step out of the things we can While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. So we take and we eat. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we take and we drink. 